Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are very excited to be joined by a guest, which we haven't had a guest in a few weeks. So I'm very excited um, to be joined by Heather Cox Richardson, who is a noted historian, author of the upcoming book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, and author of the newsletter, Letters from an American. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Waj Heather so that you can hear his very famous movie phone introduction. It, it's it's been a while since I've done this, so I, I'm I'm really excited. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College, where she teaches courses on the American Civil War, the Reconstruction Era, the American West, and the Plains Indians. As uh, Danielle has mentioned, her Substack Letters from an American is one of the most popular. Substacks and her book, Democracy Awakening, is out on September 26th and it has received a Kirkus starred review. Welcome, Heather. Sorry, that's uh, I'm a child. So this <laughs> well, is... you know, I have to say, I sort of feel like now there's nothing we can possibly follow that up with. That I mean, maybe we should just call the the, the just quit it. Right <laughs> drop the mic. We should drop the mic and walk away. Uh, you know, Heather, uh, we, we've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. Uh, and uh, congratulations on the book, which I read. Uh, it's out uh, next week. Everyone should read it and all your work. And the fact that you have such a huge audience also gives me hope and comfort in the age of the Ben Shapiro's and the Joe Rogan's, that a historian who has been at the forefront uh, of warning about the rise of authoritarianism and right-wing uh, radicalization has such a loyal, uh, educated, informed audience and, you know, usually when we start off this conversation, we talk about uh, the litany of shit that we have to deal with. Uh, but I want to flip it for a second, because, you know, reading your book, the title is Democracy Awakening, which is a hopeful title. And the book is, you know, in three parts. And the last part of the book, you, 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 you sense that there's a movement afoot, a new progressive movement, a new deal. So we, we could talk about all the terrible things, and we will. Don't you worry. But for right now, what's giving you hope that maybe, just maybe, Heather, that we might be in a moment where the majority is saying enough is enough and we're sick and tired of being terrorized 
by an increasingly radicalized and weaponized minority. And we're going to come together to create the America where we're not second-class citizens. Well, I see it all around me. And I see it in all sorts of organizations that are slipping under the radar screen from the mainstream media that is simply not picking up on them. But I see it in young people who are turning out in droves to see the vice president. I see it in the music that's coming out. I see it in the labor movement. I see it in popular culture. I see it in the fact that the White House held a a celebration of hip hop the other day. The idea of of people. And and this is not, I think, I don't look at it as a political thing so much as a re-empowerment of people, of ordinary people to take our democracy into their own hands in a way that really has not been in the forefront really since 1981, where things felt very top down. Mm. So I I actually uh, am incredibly hopeful, not only by looking at the present, but what this moment extraordinarily reminds me of and I really hate to do this to you, but is of the 1850s when we, we love the 1850s. Very- <laughs> it's our it's our favorite. <laughs> yeah, sit around and talk about which decades are your favorites, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Danielle and I, we rock with the 1850s. <laughs> uh, in the 1850s, we faced a very similar moment when an entrenched political minority very wealthy group of Southern elite enslavers had sort of stealthily taken over the system, the the nodes of power in the American federal government. They'd taken over the Supreme Court. They'd taken over the presidency. They'd, they'd really started to take over the House of Representatives. They'd taken over a number of important states. And it, it seemed like it was going to... to end up that they would be in control over the entire country and spread enslavement, not only through the American West, but also across the American North. And once the American people woke up to that Mm. and recognized what was going on, there's this wonderful moment where Abraham Lincoln says, you know, we were thunderstruck when the Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which ultimately would have made enslavement national. And, and, And we, you know, he, in fact, in his own life had stayed up all night just pacing the floor saying, I can't believe this just happened. And he had been a lawyer at that point. He really didn't expect to go back into politics, although he wanted very much to. There didn't seem to be a cause for him to do so. And he said, you know, we were thunderstruck and we all reached with whatever tools we had to hand. And we came from different parties and we came from different backgrounds and we came from all different positions that didn't agree with each other, but we knew we had to protect democracy. And it seemed like a losing battle in 1855. But of course, by you know, 1863, we had a new birth of freedom. And by 1868, we had the 14th Amendment. So, you know, if they could do it, so can we. You know, I... I always appreciate historians for exactly what it is that you just did, which is bring us back to the place of the beginning, right? Where we are witnessing a parallel moment. The difference, though, that I struggle with here is that in the 1850s, they didn't have Elon Musk and an entire Putin, you know, troll farm apparatus Mm. that was hell bent on making sure that people did not, do not awaken to what is happening, right? There was not necessarily, and you tell me if I'm wrong, a concerted campaign coming at people from every which way, you know, whether it's coming through your phone, your computer, your television, telling you, um, whatever it is that you want to hear, whenever it is that you want to hear it, whether or not it's truth or not. And I think that a part that that I struggle with in this moment is that 
while I still believe that we are the 70%, that we are the, the, the masses, right, that actually believe in truth and in science and in fact, um, and want diversity, this 30% isn't just 30%, you know, walking around the street handing out pamphlets. They have weaponized um, social media and media uh, in a way that I don't think that we've ever seen. So when you think about that in conjunction with the 1850s and our and America's ability to persevere, what do you think that our ability is in this moment, given what we're up against? So the elite Southern enslavers did, in fact, control the media in the American South. And they controlled it to the point that they simply didn't let any information that might contradict their own worldview from coming in, quite literally. I mean, you could go to prison if you had, for example, a, a, a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, or they simply would not let Northern newspapers circulate. And finally, of course, in the election of 1860, most Southern states didn't even put Abraham Lincoln on the ballot so or, or his electors on the ballot. So it's not that the media, the media world is necessarily any different right now. What is different is the amplification of that media through the artificial means that you just recognized, something that I really wish our government would take on, not stopping that language, but stopping the artificial amplification of that, which is a different thing than the, fir than the First Amendment. But the, the other piece that is, and that worries me less than one would think, because I, I really do believe at the end of the day, most people are not stupid. What worries me more is that the, the extremist Republicans, and by that, I, I, in, in my opinion, all of the ex Republicans right now are extremists. They are out mm -hmm. of step with what right. the, in, the American people have generally been. But you know the ones I'm talking about, the, mag the Trump Republicans, the MAGA mm -hmm. Republicans. It really concerns me the degree to which they have uh, taken power in the states, especially in important, again, nodes of election pieces of the states, where even though they have a very small political power numerically, they've managed to take over critical levers of our democracy. And that worries me a lot more. That being said, you know, when you think about it, how do you, how does a, a political minority of, I, I would say it's actually probably under 30%, how in the United States, which has had a history of people throwing off the idea of a coercive government, rule over 70%? Mm. And, and, you know, I play that out in my head a lot, and we know how other countries have managed that with violence, with, with state violence, um, with, with all sorts of different uh, ways of coercing people. And I have to say, I have a hard time seeing that ultimately succeeding in the United States. It's, you know, it's interesting you say that because the examples are, are afoot all throughout America, right? Like we have, we, we have Wisconsin. And as of this recording, here's the Wisconsin Republicans using and abusing what power they have to say, oh, yeah, there's this uh, liberal Supreme Court justice. Yeah, we're going to impeach her. Why? Because we can. And then you have Alabama Republicans now punishing women. Should be bigger news. We talked about it in this podcast. Uh, oh, guess what? You want to leave the state to get an abortion? Well, anyone who helps you it can be uh, held liable as a co-conspirator and get like 10 to 12 years in prison. You know, Florida, for example, uh, let's dilute black voters and on and on it goes. Uh, Tennessee, uh, oh, three lawmakers, especially two black men, uh, engaged in a nonviolent protest with the masses against gun violence. We're going to kick you out. And so we're dealing with uh, 
what I call a radicalized, weaponized minority that now represents the GOP that does not seem beholden whatsoever, Heather, to any norms or democracy. And so this is the flip side of me being hopeful. You know, I, you know, we have said on this podcast, I've said also, I've written about that. If they can't have power, they're going to burn everything down, including themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It Mm -hmm. will be an act of self-immolation and even equality to them is subjugation, right? And so I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, from a historian's point of view, you wrote this other great book uh, called How the South Won the Civil War. It came out a couple of years ago, which talks about the mindset that has still permeated America, right? Um, in which we infantilized, rationalized, elevated, uh, romanticized, and excused white supremacy um, to the point where it still infects us and still dominates us. You take all that into account, and, and the, the cynic in me is that we have never really confronted this as mm. a threat that it is, and we've always let this minority beat us in the sense that we're Charlie Brown, and they're Lucy, and we say, okay, Lucy, you're not going to lift the football, are you? And Lucy's like, hee, 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 no. And then we run towards the football, and the majority falls on its ass. Like, your response to that, that that's the feeling that I have. Well, so let me start with the idea that I don't disagree with you in the least little bit, that that thread, which the, I mean, basically you can divide maybe world history, but at least American history up into the fact there's two ways to look at the world. Either everybody should be equal before the law, or some people are better than others and have the right to rule over everybody else. And in both of those strands are very deeply embedded in the United States, for sure. And one of the, let me take your position for a minute. One of the things that, um, that when people say to me, oh, that can't possibly ever happen in the United States, where we have a one party state that is, that treats people according to different categories and that, that people aren't responsible for their actions before the law. I always, my answer to that is always, well, we've already had it. And Mm. we've had it really dramatically from about 1874 to 1965, and we've had it in the American South. And I think that's really instructive, that moment, because, or that period, because it didn't last. It lasted for a long time, but there are two things that tore that apart, um, and a theme over all of them. One is that uh, people who were trying to challenge Jim Crow and challenge the Solid South, as it was known, operated in the courts from the very beginning. I mean, they they did not sit, you know, roll over and say, "Okay, we're going to let this happen." They fought it in the courts. But by the the by 1909, the NAACP also began to adver- uh, to uh, call attention to the atrocities that were being committed in the American South, and refused to let people look the other way. And then people decided that it was not going to be enough simply to try and fight in the courts. They needed to take to the streets. They needed actually to be out there changing things and bringing attention to what was being done, especially to black Americans, but also to indigenous Americans and other Brown Americans. So there was an attempt among politically marginalized people, marginalized people or political minorities. I want to make it clear. It's not just racial minorities or ethnic minorities, but political minorities, political minorities in those states to step up and say, it's our country too. We have a right to be treated equally before the law and we have a right to have a say in our government. And what happened when they did that was they started being murdered, right? In, (laughs) in, you know, fairly large numbers. But what's interesting to me about that moment is that those are people who have virtually no power, right? And yet 
within the space of, say, 1954 to 1965, they completely change what the United States is all about. At a time when really only white men are voting, white women are voting, but they vote with their husbands until 1980. So the idea that we're stuck here and we, we have to accept what is being imposed on us by a powerful minority has just been proven wrong in the past. And now we have, of course, the benefit of the fact that people of color really can vote. Black people really can vote. Women really can vote. Now, not in the numbers they should be able to. Voter suppression is a very real thing. But I'm not willing yet, yet to say the game's over. You know, the, the thing that troubles me, and there are so many things, but I'm just <laughs> going to tap into one of them um, at this moment, is some days I feel like we are <laughs> three months into the next hundred year war, right? Like I feel like, you know, while I hear you say, well, Jim Crow didn't last forever, it lasted for a hundred years, right? That's a hundred years. Right. So in the thing that Waj and I talk about on this show and, and others is the fact that this country and what we've been able to win and earn in the courts, right, and win back, um, we are not going to see the return of in our lifetime. And I think that that's what makes people feel so despondent, so helpless and hopeless in a lot of ways is thinking, well, look at what this Trump Supreme Court has done, right? They have taken the last 50 years when democracy was actually real in this country for um, all Americans, and they have wiped it out in three terms. And so when you, when I say that to you, I guess my question is, <sighs> there was so much blood shed. There has been so much blood shed. And you have these MAGA Republicans co cosplaying violence and re recreating the Civil War, like chomping at the bit for it. We're still at a time when we're discovering mass graves of Black people, free black people in this country, and we're discovering their graves now. So I guess my, my, my question is, while it doesn't last forever, a hundred years sure as hell feels like it. And I'm wondering how we, how we sustain resolve mm. at a time when we were born into progress and the future and possibility, but Waj's kids are not, Right. So my answer to that would be that that your perspective is one that I would put in the 19 teens when people are feeling like this has gone on forever and the the system is the way it is and it can't be changed. Mm. What I'm trying to do is look at the world as if it's 1874 and say we know what's coming if we don't mm. stop this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is frustrating to, to scholars of Reconstruction, for example, is it didn't have to turn out the way it did. And there were times, as I say, like, 19, like 1874, where people who had power could have stepped up 
and said, these laws that are suppressing the vote, these uh, vigilante groups that the federal government used to be going after and now is looking the other way, these uh, attempts of the federal government that they used to be doing to try and protect black rights, they're now backing off on. There was a time when people could have stopped that from happening, could have mm-hmm. stopped that erosion, and they didn't. And if and because they didn't, we got exactly what you're talking about. And I think what I'm trying to set up is the idea, and the reason that I scream so loud so often is because I want people to know that if we don't stop it, we are in fact looking at the next hundred years or more. Yep. And so the 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 thing that we have going for us now is that we know how to stop it. We've seen how it happens. We have seen not only in this country but in other countries the signs of a system being taken over by a radical right wing political minority that is amassing a, a a following by othering the the majority of the population by blaming it for the troubles that 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 population finds itself in. And we we can see that happening. We know where it goes and we know how to stop it. So that I think is where I find hope is that we're not in, I mean, one of the things people always ask me is, are we going to get to a civil war? And I'm like, you know, we're, we're in one, you know, the, mm-hmm. that if you look as a historian at this moment, look at the number of people we lose every day to gun violence and not yeah. just uh, the the ones that people identify, but domestic violence, more than half of our, mass shootings or domestic violence. I mean, this is something that will be featured in future history books that nowadays just really falls under the radar screen. So one of the, 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 the points really, though, is that even though things are not good, it's not a question of it coming, it's already here. Mm-hmm. I still believe that there is, at least for another 14 months, an opportunity to say no. We've been here before. We're not going there again. And that's where I find my, my hope. Uh, let's assume uh, that the majority wins, like it won in the past. And let's assume that we've learned some lessons. And let's assume, even though I don't see enough of it, that those who are in power, who are oftentimes white and powerful and wealthy, do hold these people into account and don't give them a free pass like they did post-Civil War. Well, since forever, right? Um, this 30%, I say 30%, you said a little less than 30%. Let's just say this 25 to 30%, right? They're not going anywhere, Heather. And so let, let's, let's, let's think about this. Suppose this, this multicultural coalition that is arising that we'll talk about that hopefully leads us to the new deal, whatever that looks like. Suppose we quote unquote win barely, right? But we win, mm-hmm. we'll win in the courts and shallow, we win 2024 local elections city elections, culturally, will barely win. What do we as a country do with the 25 to 30% that have entrenched themselves in one of the two major political parties? Uh, pretty much, let's be honest, have Fox, Newsmax, the podcasts, the Substacks, you are an exception, uh, the YouTube channels, um, and are not going anywhere without a bloody fight. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to be all like like historical here and suggest Please. that um and I hate, I really hate this is so so one of the things that always jumps out in American history and remember I can't do any other country but in American history is that 
one of the things that always creates in this country a fairer society is when the economy is not one in which all the wealth is amassed at the top. So one of the things that has given us, you know, in the times that we have uh, a much more what I would call democratic society. Those are times when there is what economists call a great compression between the wealth of the people at the bottom and the wealth of the people at the top and their income levels. So where I'm going with this is that I don't think you can look just at the the cultural or the social issues or the hatreds that are happening amongst that group you're talking about without looking at a larger picture and mm. saying that if, in fact, we change the direction of our politicians, and I don't just mean who's in office. I mean, if you think about the fact that the, the, the backbenchers, if you will, the people coming up are not just more diverse, but they're much younger. The reality of people that are 50 and younger is really different than the reality of people who are 50 and older because they've grown up in entirely different circumstances with the internet, of course, being native to them, but also with the fear of climate change over their head, You know, the, the idea of school shootings everywhere, which by the way, I'm 60. This was just, and I come from a town where everybody hunted and very comfortable with guns. That was not our reality at all. Even I mean, us, something even us. Yeah. I'm in my 40s. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. my kids just, I mean, I'm sorry, I just have to mention this. You know, you mentioned gun violence. The number one killer of children and youth in America as of last year is gun violence. And my kids, as Dania mentioned, you know, both of them go, I have three, two of them go to public school. And just last week, casually, the school district is like, yeah, we did our first lockdown drill. And I was talking to other parents. I said, "This I have never experienced a lockdown drill in my life. To me, as a 42-year-old, Heather, it just sent chills down my spine. I just had to mention that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. Well, well, no, but I think it speaks to this, that that reality, I mean, my first reaction when you said it was, I can't imagine. But, but be, that, although that sounds trite, I truly can't imagine that. Mm. So if you've lived through those things, and you've also lived through a world in which your overriding concern was not a Cold War between communism and capitalism, and you also have experienced a world in which you remember when when there was, in fact, better gen, uh, gender equity and racial equity, what world do you create? And I don't think that I think one of the real errors of people when they're thinking about politics going forward is to assume that our parameters are going to stay the same way they are with the people who are in power right now who come from a really different place. So mm. all of this I started with saying, you know, economic equality. One of the reasons I talk about taxation so much is, you know, I, I hate to say it, but imagine what would happen if we unwound just the Trump tax cuts and the George W. Bush tax cuts both of which were extraordinarily high um, uh, cuts that really dramatically moved wealth upward and are absolutely, if you look at the numbers, behind the fact that we have a budget deficit right now because mm. our, uh, our spending for, um, for discretionary spending in the government has actually stayed pretty level since the 1990s, uh, really about the 1950s, right after World War II. Imagine if you unwound that. Like, what does that open up in terms of changes, in terms of demographics, in terms of education, in terms of all sorts of things? So when you talk about that pe that group of people, yeah, they're always going to be those people. In every society, there are those 30% that you just kind of got to write off intellectually. But the question is, do you empower them to have mm. poli the political upper hand in this country? And there are certainly times when we have not done that.
And, you know, most Americans, I think, or most people perhaps are um, just trying to get by and they yeah. are, they are influenced by the culture around them. Change the, change the culture. And I think you never change that, that small percent, but you stop them from being able to attract those people in the middle who are influenced by the way they talk. Quarantine them. I wish. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, when, when, when I hear you say change the culture, right. And I think that that is exactly what the MAGA right wing is working over time to do, right. Is to, I mean, literally we saw a viral video this week of state senators, um, blowtorching books, mm. right. You have seen, you know, in a, in a Republican state, you see, you know, the erasure of black history, of black experience, um, not to mention, don't say, you know, don't say gay. You see this formulaic response that moves through the schools, which have always been on the front lines mm. for progress and justice in this country. And you're watching the formulaic response, meaning this takeover of our education with the, with the ruse of saying that any exposure to anything outside of a white centric, you know, patriarchal ideology is grooming, right. Uh, is indoctrination. And so they are literally going school by school, city by city, and as Steve Bannon had said, village by village, shifting the culture by erasing everything that is not white. And so when we see that, that is the power of this very loud 30% that isn't the majority, but somehow are able to use the same formula from the 1950s and prior 
in order to make sure. I mean, just just recently, right before I came on, headline, anti-affirmative action group is now going after West Point's enrollment, right? Mm -hmm. So you're seeing at every turn where progress was made, the, 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 these people who have been at war are winning by, by shifting and changing culture. And so how do we battle that? Well, I would say they're, they're winning, but the battle's not over. I mean, there is an organization now that's encouraging people to run for school boards in a, you know, a progressive organization in every single school district. And as we know, the book banning mm. has really been, been spearheaded by a handful of people, two in one case, in one state. And the, I think a lot of the, the moment we're in is trying to get people or, or, or is getting people to wake up and say, is this really the world you want? Is you, do you really want people to be ignoring reality to be ignoring science, to be selling you uh, a fantasy that is in fact destroying not just your livelihoods, but also your communities. You know, one of the things that really interests me is that there's a theory about how you destroy a democracy. And Mm -hmm. that is, uh, I actually think it had its roots in the United States, although it's associated with with Russia. And it's called political technology. And the idea is that you create a false world that people vote uh, based on. So you flood the zone with shit, like Bannon said, and you run false candidates who promise to do one thing and do something else. Or even you run candidates who have the same name as your opponents so that people get confused and they wrote for, vote for the wrong one and it splits the votes. And that's happened. No, that's happened oh, here in America. Dude, I know. I know. That's why um, I'm laughing. So, um, well, the one that interests me, and this is not the point I'm going to make, but the other piece of that is blackmail. And I just have a hard time believing that we have seen everything else in the United States and we have not yet seen blackmail. You really think that they didn't put that in place? And I don't mm. have any specifics, but but I'm boy, I've got my eye open for that every day. But what interests me about that is what happens if you get people to do that and you get people to say, yeah, I'm going to vote for, in this case, Donald Trump, and we're going to go down that road and 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 I'm going to have this great life because you promised it to me. What happens when they recognize that that didn't that that's not real that that didn't happen, and the theorists of this uh, the of the of the rise of authoritarianism say, well, you know, most of the people who fall for that were apathetic beforehand, mm. and they will simply become apathetic again. And this is one of the reasons that people talk about Trump not being able to take his people with him, or for somebody to pick up Trump's people that the, that the Republican Party won't take those people with them to somebody like DeSantis, which I think is probably right. So a lot will become apathetic. And I wonder how many people, though, will recognize that what they wanted in terms of, for example, rebuilding the middle class in the United States can be given to them by somebody else. So will some Mm. people peel off into a different into a different political party. But then I think the group that that really interests me is the one you mentioned before. I do think that some people will simply say, I didn't get what I wanted. Nobody will give it to me. Mm. I'm going to burn it all down. And yeah. that's, I think, what we're seeing with the, the, the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives, which is quite deliberately trying to burn it all down. And, burn it all down. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? On, on the flip side, though, uh, uh, the people who are trying to actually build something. And this is where, uh, you know, I'll personally end on a hopeful note, but I, I want your take on it, both as a historian and as observer and commentator in U.S. politics. The, the, the COVID uh, pandemic 
a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that killed over 1 million people. And by the way, folks, it's making a comeback. Please get tested and be safe. A friend of ours uh, just, uh, and a couple of friends of ours just said that they got COVID again. But uh, what COVID did, Heather, um, in, in addition to exposing us raw, all the warts, uh, the sins, uh, the goodness of America, all of it, it, it made a lot of workers say, hey, why am I working two jobs just to stay broke? Hey, mm-hmm. there has to be more to life than just this. Hey, mm-hmm. I remember my daddy and my granddaddy used to be part of something called unions. And what we're witnessing right now uh, as we're recording this is the first ever uh, UAW strike against the big three. We're witnessing first ever SAG and Ryder strike together uh, against uh, Hollywood. We're witnessing Amazon and Starbucks workers coming together. And it seems like it ain't stopping. What we're also seeing is the Empire Strikes Back, the cruelty, Mm. the comments of Bob Iger saying, uh, you know, it was allegedly Bob Iger, but they say it's Bob Iger who says, yeah, we're just going to wait them out until they get homeless. Or Tim Gunner, the Australian multimillionaire whose clip went viral because with his chest out, he said exactly what a lot of people are thinking is like, we have to punish them, these workers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I sense some hope here, Heather, that this is spreading like fire and the workers can come together across this diverse section to create this type of a multicultural coalition that could lift us over the edge. Now, that's just my take, but as a historian, with, with history being made as we speak, where do you see this going? I'll answer that, but I want to hear what Danielle has to say about it. <laughs> that, is, that is really, um, where do I see it going? Um, I think that we're, you know, I, I say this and I, and I, and I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. I see this as the beginning of a very important revolution in America. I have, as we all sat and watched those of us that were privileged to be indoors, uh, and not work during the pandemic, uh, and work, you know, and, and work from home and really have time to think about the way that we've been working. Um, I, I can't help but look at this moment and say, we have somebody that owns as much wealth as like 99% of Mm. nations, right? Like there are eight people that have the wealth of a majority of the nations on this planet. So I can't help but think that this moment is a revolutionary moment. Um, that people have had enough, right? They've been tricked by reality TV into the glamorization of, you know, of wealth. Look at me, look at super sweet 16, look at my car. And all those people are going to jail for what? Fraud, right? Cause sometimes you can't fake it until you make it right. Until you make it inside of a prison. And so I think that workers are saying, I don't even have enough to survive. Mm. And you're on your sixth and seventh house. You're buying planes. You're using our money to go to Mars and we can't eat on earth. Right? So it's, I, I, I think that people are, I, I think that you're seeing support for unions in a way we haven't seen since the beginning of the 20th century because the harms that were caused during that time are making a return. And instead of calling these people robber barons, we've named them geniuses because of the size of their bank accounts. And I think that regular Americans have had enough. So I agree with both of you. But let me suggest 
that that is not a revolution, which implies that something is new, I'm going to suggest that you are tapping into the most American vision of the country possible. That is that Mm. everybody should be treated equally before the law, that nobody should get the kind of benefits that the robber barons or whatever you want to call them have gotten, and that uh, the, the government should make it possible for everybody, but especially those at the bottom of the economic scale to have access to resources and education in order to rise into that middle class. And the reason that I say that that is extraordinarily traditional is because that is precisely the argument that people made during the progressive era, people like Theodore Roosevelt. It's a little hard to get more establishment Mm -hmm. than Theodore Roosevelt. It is exactly the argument that Abraham Lincoln made and the argument that Abraham Lincoln put in place after, in 1854, they recognized that the elite enslavers had sewn everything up so all the money was going to them. They were the richest people in the world at the time, the Mm. elite enslavers. And it was Mm -hmm. people like Lincoln who were working hard and recognizing that all of that was slipping away. So when we talk about what we're looking at in the future, this is why I am hopeful that, yes, it is appears to be a a revolution from the perspective of the last 20 years. But in Mm -hmm. fact, what people like the three of us are calling for is a return to a fundamentally traditional America in which the government does not privilege people of extreme wealth. It's actually the Republicans during the Civil War who put the income tax in place because they, they literally say that if you make more money than anybody else, you should pay more to support the government. And that that traditional that traditional set of values has stood us in good stead at least twice before, three times before, if you remember, of course, the New Deal, and that it's high time for it to wake up again. So I that's why I'm hopeful. I think I think that the the power of, of young people, the power of politically marginalized voices, combined with the fact that those are the voices that echo our great American heroes like Fannie Lou Hamer and mm. and um, Louis Brandeis and Abraham Lincoln and so on. If you think about who today's MAGAs can, can rely on in our history, who do they have? Like literally, Henry Ford, you can have him, right? So, so to me, this is why I find this moment exciting is because it feels like a coming together of both the past and the future in a way that does have the ability not simply to go back to the New Deal, but to create a new deal that is centered not on heteronormative white men, you know, providing for their kids, but rather that is centered on, on children is my guess is what the future will be. But that's a very different kind of expansion of American democracy than we've ever had before. And I just hope I'm around to see it. Uh, Heather Fox Richardson, we uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. You were one of the guests that uh, we've, always wanted to bring on ever since I joined uh, or was asked to join Danielle uh, to be a part of Democracy-ish. Uh, and I, I also want to say that I wish more of your colleagues can take a, a lesson from you because you you are one of these fancy schmancy academics. You got all the letters and you teach at Boston College uh, and you have all this this wealth of scholarship. And yet if people read your books, which they should, and again, the latest one, Democracy Awakening Notes, on the state of America is out next week. Uh, but even your Substack letters from American is you don't talk down to people. And even yeah. in the book, y- you explain it. 
and, 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 and you do it in a really compact, efficient way where I feel like I've learned a lot uh, from a person who not only has a scholarship, but also cares deeply about this thing called democracy. So on, on behalf of us and, and, our, and our listeners, thank you so much. Uh, this was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.